So hello everyone and welcome to the Market Finance Vodcast series called Taking Stock. I'm Anil Stocker. I founded uh, our fintech business Market Finance back in 2011 and we deliver finance for ambitious business leaders and entrepreneurs and one of the big highlights in my job is getting to know the variety of business owners who have used us for um, hearing their story uh, and we often used to invite these entrepreneurs to our office in Shoreditch on a Friday night for beers and, and to listen to their stories um, in person. But now with COVID, we have moved these online um, and we're going to continue uh, having great conversations and meeting great people, uh, hearing about the challenges they're facing, how they built their business, how they're dealing with COVID and much more. Um, so let's get into the action. I'm very excited to have our guest today, uh, Melanie Goldsmith, who is the founder of a boozy sweets company called uh, Smith and Sinclair. Uh, I probably got that wrong in how she describes it, but that's what it looks like to me. Um, and we're also gonna be hearing about one of her new ventures, which is in the CBD space. Um, so Mel, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, thank you, and thanks for having me. And you're sitting in New York, but we've met in London, um, and you've been on, your story is great, you've really, had a great journey from starting up. So before we get into your business, um, your, your, your two businesses, tell us a little bit, how did you get started on an entrepreneurial uh, journey? Like, how did you get started from the beginning? So mine was very much, uh, I was an accidental start to entrepreneurialism. I think there's a lot of stories out there of people who like side hustle from the age of 11, creating tuck shops in their school. And that was very much not me. I was too busy learning how to put on makeup and having a really good time. Um, I did, however, become a bit more entrepreneurial at uni. I was studying music in yes. Cardiff and there was this, I had an obsession with jazz and there was a very poor jazz scene in Cardiff considering there's the Royal Welsh College of Music there. So I started up kind of a university focused jazz series of events, which went on to be a festival at the Hay Literary Festival. Um, and I carried that on for two and a half years before kind of graduating my master's. I came back to London, kind of tail end of the recession with kind of no one paying for any level of music or theater producers and yeah. a job in PR, um, which was not for me. But whilst I was doing that job to kind of stay sane, I started side hustling these board game nights where the whole mission was to kind of get adults to play and connect in a much more natural organic environment than these sort of stagnated speed dating nights or kind of like you meet online and then you have to meet in a mutually beneficial environment to stay safe and these were just about like you had to know someone that had been to one previously they were in bars all around east london it was, so it, was dating, it was a dating it was a dating uh, night yeah um but twisted so that people came and they didn't just like have a drink and have nothing to say there were you know, there was Guess Who, there was Battleships, there was Articulate and Pictionary, you could join a group game, do a solo game, um, preferably not solo because it was a dating night, but <laughs> it's what it is. And um, what we found is people came and they just bottlenecked around the bar because as adults we become so stagnated in kind of social constructs and I needed people to feel what I would say more socially lubricated. Um, so my co-founder, Emil, who was a chef at the time, created this twist on a classic cocktail and made it edible. So that when people came in, they got given like the classic candy stripe bags and they kind of scavenged the area where we had bottles with just like tons of alcoholic gummies, basically. They looked like giant penny sweets and they were very boozy at the time. Um, not like a jello shot, not like slimy. They actually how tasted much, like- How much booze were you injecting into it? 
So at the time we were working with rum, whiskey and gin and you'd think it was injecting because that's kind of a classic boozy sweet, but it wasn't. We were actually reformulating it to be a layer like a drink. So in the way that when you make a cocktail, you've got your spirit base, you've got your mixes, you've got your garnish. We were doing that just in a solid product. So we used vegan setting agents, which are pectin, which is like the derivative of citrus fruits. And you mix the alcohol in, it's a patented recipe it's completely proprietary to us and it allows us to retain the alcohol without burning it off, but not creating any kind of sluggish texture to the gummy itself. Excellent. Wow. So that's where the idea came from and uh, you were using it in those dating nights. And how did you then turn that into a business? So how did you start to get that off the ground and actually start doing more with that idea? So we were baptism of fire. So we were doing these events. We both still had full-time jobs and like a couple of the people they worked in agencies, PR, whatever. And one of the women who came offered us a market stall on Barrick street market, 20 quid a day. You have to be there for 12 hours. So, you know, we were driving to central London at seven in the morning, set up this marquee in the middle of winter, dead freezing cold, and would hawk these alcoholic gummies at sort of a pound a pop um, sandwich between a fruit vendor and a sandwich guy in central London. And we made about three grand, we built a website over that Christmas holiday. That's the Christmas of 2013. Yes. And two days after the website went live, we had this inquiry from Imbibe Live, which is the largest alcohol trade show. It happens at the Excel Center every year. And they wanted to use it for their marketing campaign that year. And they wanted 20,000 gummies. Now, wow. And wait, we, put that in perspective, you sold how many gummies on your, on your store? Like 1,000. And oh, they were 20,000. So we were making them in my flat and our, you could make two, 300 a day there without setting off the carbon monoxide alarm. So we got half the money up front. So we were like, okay, we can rent some spaces, except this is 2014 and the support for food and drink um, startups wasn't what it is today. And it was very hard to rent kitchen space that was affordable. We ended up renting off synagogues and kitchens. Um, so we rented, you know, like a church, a school, a community building. They were all licensed food facilities um, and they didn't use them after five o'clock. So it was a really convenient way of us getting like a six hour stint in a bigger space where we could bring in a trolley and cure the product. There wow. were no disasters. And did, and did they know that you were making sweets alcoholic in those kitchens or you didn't tell them that detail? They didn't care. They didn't care um not that i don't think they'd have a problem with it it's not like we had child laborers working in the kitchen with us um but we you know everything goes wrong in the beginning and the end but we you know had to cure them in very specific temperatures we were working we had a two week it was a school holiday and it was a massive industrial school kitchen and they let us take it over for the two-week school holiday non-stop so we got the bulk of our manufacturing done in that space and time and I had dehumidifiers all around the space to make sure the moisture levels were stable for the gummies. And one of the, like halfway through this holiday, a cleaner came in overnight that we weren't made aware of. And when we came in the next day, all of our gummies, 4,000 gummies were melted because they turned off all the dehumidifiers in the middle of the night. Oh my God, that's crazy. So we drive to Costco and get, you know, four kilograms of rice and try and, you know, dehydrate all the gummies to stabilize them. We did get through that patch. You know, we got the 20,000 out, we got paid. Um, we sold some bits and bobs that we owned to make a bit more cash, which got us, you know, the ability to buy some packaging and some more equipment. We worked with Secret Cinema and different events companies in that first year. 
um, and eventually got the attention of Harvey Nichols and Selfridges where we launched at Christmas 2014. Um, the following, this is all off kind of cash flow profitability and then we got the attention of John Lewis and that was kind of scale up manic yeah. time. Um, we had to grow the team. So we raised a small seed round of 370,000 from private angels. Yes. Moved into an army site where we had full 24 hour access to the production kitchen and kind of a packing facility where we did all our own logistics and were there for about a year and a half before then growing into a site in Bermondsey where there's a huge sort of food and drink industry going on. Um, have a proper innovation lab, got a proper office, got some more people in the team and raised a series A of around two mil. Yes. Again, from a small VC, but kind of two big angel backers. And it grew from there. The packaging got a bit of a glow up. We expanded the range outside of just being alcoholic gummies. We're now, you know, our mission was always to make adulting more fun. Our mission wasn't to make alcoholic sweets. It just happened to be that something that's really fun is sweets that make you tipsy. Um, and now we've expanded our portfolio into kind of like other really fun food and drink products that just advocate for the experience of socializing and treating yourself and indulging in something that just tastes amazing. So we've got edible glitters that go into cocktails. We've got instant cocktail tablets that are effervescence that you just drop into a mixer to turn it into a perfect peach bellini. Um, and then we've also now got our mocktails because there's a number of people who love the product but are in a period of their life where they don't want to be drinking. So that's kind of the full range of Smith & Sinclair. So it sounds like it, it was a real story of like hustle and starting really small and incrementally um, trying to you know push the boundaries further and further. I mean, there must have been times when you, I mean, what drove you, I guess, in that period of time? That's what I'm trying to, to get at because I'm sure you must have had bumps on the road and things that didn't go, you know, these things that didn't go according to plan. But what, what kept you going and thinking that this could be bigger? I'm trying to get kind of a little bit more of that on that motivational side. Yeah, I mean, ambition is a funny one because you get addicted to it. When you start getting those successes, even though they're probably only 10% of the time is a success and 90% of the time is failing, um, those small successes are addictive. And I'm someone I get, I'm, I'm infatuated by learning. I love to be in the deep end. I love to fire fire. I find a huge satisfaction in kind of solving a problem and coming out the other end. I think my motivation is very heavily led by fear of failure as much as it is kind of an ego to create something that could be in everyone's home in the world. That's a brand that's, you know, globally recognized for years to come. So, you know, I think anyone that starts a business with a strong mission, I just want to make, you know, I wanted to make a brand that stood for something beyond just like constantly having to be excusing yourself for purpose. You know, there are so many amazing brands that are doing amazing things for the environment and for humanity in general. And then there's a lot of brands that are doing not so good stuff. But no one really focused on just a moment of a smile. And I think mental health is such a topic of conversation that's, you know, rife, especially at the moment with everything going on. And we just needed a brand that was fun, that's such joy to gift, that's such a joy to receive. And that just, it's, a, you know, everything we do is thought through from an environmental perspective. All our packaging is recyclable, all our products are vegan. But, you know, it's not about that. It's about just like that moment of fun. Yeah, having that moment of having fun. Yeah, capturing that in some, in some sort of way. And living in the, in the moment. I guess, I, guess that's a, I guess that's also, I mean, you're a large part of the brand, right? Because the found, you know, founder really almost, become, almost is an extension of, of their character as well. I've noticed speaking to a lot of entrepreneurs. Okay, so you've, you've, you've built this business. It's, it's been hard work. You've got your um, funding in, um, your, your Series A. 
when did you start to think international and, and the United States um, or other markets? And talk me about how you got approached by a big company, didn't you, over in the States? Yeah, so when we did our Series A, it was very much around the intent of exploring how we can grow globally. We'd had quite a few inquiries from Australia and America because the brand's really unique. There isn't a single competitor out there who's managed to retain alcohol in a gummy. And everything about the brand, like you said, it's supposed to be this camp, fun, inclusive, you know, it's, it's, it's like a mini festival. It's pride in a box. It's, it's just supposed to be that on shelf. And the product's striking and it's beautiful and it's bright. And a lot of retail was approaching us because there was a gap in the market. But growing internationally is savage. And it isn't as easy as just sort of putting products on a ship and getting it into a new dock. There are logistic complications, there are regulation complications. Um, you know, America is like 50 countries separately operating in one geographical territory. And it's just, it comes with a lot of cost. So once we raised the two mil, we were looking at what it would realistically take to be a success internationally and decided it was time to raise kind of a more substantial sum of money. We were achieving around 120% growth year on year. Wow. And we wanted to really hit that scale point. So we wanted to kind of do that big jump from a million dollar brand to a multi-million dollar brand. And to do that, we went out looking for six million in funding and had an acquisition offer from wow. Ray, someone that came and wanted to buy you, wanted to buy you out. Yeah. So the the team who'd invested in the two million were heavily involved in Tilray. And so Tilray is the name of this company. So they they're a big company. What do they do, Tilray? So they're one of the four biggest cannabis companies. Um, they're on the New York Stock Exchange. They have their primary business in medical cannabis, but then they also own a company called Manitoba Harvest, who are a hemp food-based business. Um, and their intention is to be the biggest legal cannabis brand in the world. Yes, because it's legal in certain states in the US. Is that right? Yeah, they're operational in Canada, though. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they came to you, they're a cannabis company. Why do they come to an alcoholic sweets company? What was the vision? So they actually found out about us because in 2016, we did a bit of a stunt product around the US election and we were going through a really bad cash flow month, quarter, and needed to bring in cash to pay payroll. It wasn't necessarily like we were on a downward spiral, it's just we'd hit a really tight spot and thought it'd be fun to do something charitable that would also like help us out in a tight fix and build some funny noise. And being half American, when Trump got elected, I'm very vocal about the fact that that would not have been my choice. And we created a product called Trump Sucks, which were these suckers, these lollipops in the shape of Trump's head. And they were orange and bitter taste. And we were selling them for five pounds a pop it took us, you know, we did it over a weekend. My friend did the video. It cost us a hundred pounds. My husband's a sculptor. So he made the mold and, you know, overnight when it went live, it just had instant viral pickup. I've never seen anything like it. It had 4 million shares in 24 hours. Um, wow. We ended up selling 20,000 pounds worth of these lollipops. And there were four people that, in my team. And that's what got you through that cash flow crunch. That, yeah, that, we ended that, up. That's real hustle. Yeah, we ended up donating all the profits to Planned Parenthood. So we didn't profit off it as a political activity, but it really did, like, yeah, the cash injection managed to keep us alive, which was great. Giving, you know, £6,000 to charity was great. Um, and when we were doing the fulfillment of these items, there was one 
order which stood out because one person had ordered uh, 300 lollipops. Um, this is pre-GDPR and I Googled <laughs> him, obviously, and got in touch Why, with the guy. Yeah, exactly. Why does he need 300 of them? And was like, why do you need 300 Trump lollipops? And it turns out that he was very impactful in the Hillary campaign and he thought it was a very fun product to gift to a number of the people who were also involved in that campaign. And I happened to be going to New York the following week because my friend was opening a Broadway play. We met up for coffee. We got on really well. And, and he was the person who then like really started investing. He financially invested, but he also got really interested in the innovation we'd created. You know, we had all these products that were first to market and there was such lacking innovation from a product development standpoint in cannabis. I think it made sense to kind of acquire us as an innovation opportunity and brand builders we you know we've been really successful in creating a brand that's got a huge following a really successful kind of global clarity around it and it gave us the launch pad once we got acquired to launch a second brand under the umbrella of still making adulting more fun but more focused on a younger audience um that sort of gen z target where the mission was to kind of make make and help people feel they're kind of good so rather than Smith and Sinclair, which is very focused on that, like a millennial audience where it's kind of like frivolity and, you know, they're going through hen parties and housewarmings and birthdays and engagements. And you want to be celebrating in quite a, you know, not materialistic, but like in a very physical way. Whereas that Gen Z audience, they're not necessarily having parties. They're just trying to survive their three side hustles and trying to do it and feel good about it and not feel like they're being medicated. And that's where we came up with the idea for our second brand, Colin. Okay, so Smith and Sinclair was the alcoholic gummies and their new brand, Pollen, which you've been doing in conjunction with Tilray, um, is, is uh, CBD. Is CBD, is it kind of supplements or how do, how, uh, is it kind of also in gummies or what kind of format is it? So we used, I mean, we've worked so hard to create the best tasting gummy on the market that we do have a gummy range of CBD. So you get three different flavors per pack. We have three different benefit skews. So we've got your power bank, which is an energy and focus building we've got no pressure which is all around boosting circulation improving like lethargy of the body if you've been sitting down all day and then we've got soothe you which is more of a mindfulness um, decompressing range each of our SKUs has active ingredients that enhance the cbd so in no pressure you've got turmeric to increase blood circulation in power bank you've got natural sources of cacao to create energy in soothe you've got honey and chamomile and in the UK, we also have drink drops, which are kind of water soluble. They're first to market, um, kind of a replacement for squash so that you can put them in your water to add a bit of natural flavor. Um, there's no sugar and you get a really high level of milligram dosage without the taste because we're specialists in flavor and we've developed all this technology around bitter blockers. So you don't get that terpene flavor coming through. It's constituted with really powerful flavor matches. Excellent. So the people, so that's a younger clientele in the UK as well. In the US, you can sell this everywhere. It's all, it's all it's in the US. Yeah. There are some states which you can't ship to um, that still haven't regulated the retail of CBD, but we sell online to the states that do. And, and is CBD, you know, obviously we're going to come to COVID because I'd love to hear just what's happening there, but are people buying more CBD products right now? Is there a greater anxiety in, 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 in US and UK and all over the world, I guess? Or do you see an increase in orders? Yeah, we've seen a spike since the new year, definitely. I think, you know, we haven't invested too much into the exposure of the brand yet. I mean, we were kind of looking at 2020 as our big year and with COVID, we've had to pull back on a lot of our marketing spend. So we don't have that much brand awareness. We only launched it in November. Mm -hmm. There hasn't been the 
legacy of Smith and Sinclair. So it's obviously not selling in comparison, it's a baby brand, um, but we've definitely seen a spike. I think the more you research around CBD, the more you can understand how it will work for you. It's not a quick fix. It's not instant. You know, people will take one gummy and be like, I didn't feel anything. It's not supposed to feel like anything. It's something that, you know, you have an endocannabinoid system. Everyone does. So we actually produce cannabinoids. So CBD isn't taking something extraordinary from your body and putting it in. It is to boost in the same way you would vitamin D or B12. Um, yes. But it's 14 days to integrate into your system. So you've kind of got to keep a routine going for 14 days. And then you will, like I personally have found a huge difference. We've had phenomenal testimonials from people who've enjoyed the brand and the products who, you know, from anything from improving sleep to reducing anxiety, um, you know, we've had a beautiful testimonial most recently of how much it helps someone's, um, one of the team members actually, um, child with, who suffers with autism and how much has it improved their articulation of words, their behavioral challenges. Um, so I think, you know, people like to call it placebo. It's definitely not, um, but it is homeopathic. Wow. Wow. Well, we've, so we've got, I mean, that's really interesting. So you've got these two brands. Have you kept most of the team that, that were your original team? Have they all come with you into this, into the bigger group now with Tilray? Yeah. So we, yeah, we actually didn't have anyone turnover during the acquisition. We yeah. have the same team who work across Smith & Sinclair and Pollen just to create efficiencies across both brands. Yeah. As Pollen grows, I'm sure we will need to split certain people off for certain roles, but we're fortunate that kind of our operations, sales, marketing departments can all, can all be efficient across both brands at the moment. And yeah, we've had our longest team members have been with us for four and a half years. Our shortest team members have been with us. It would be America because we only launched here in September. Um, so they're our newest team in the yeah. UK, probably a year. Now, now we've got all this way without even talking about the effects of COVID really. So tell, tell us then what, what happened when, when lockdown happened and how is it affecting your business or are you able to just continue as you were? I mean, I mean, we're fortunate that we have a parent company who is able to help us finance any cash flow dips yeah. that we're experiencing. Um, being fully transparent, we are running, you know, around 25% to date less than we thought we'd be at for year to date. Yeah. We've taken yeah. a pretty chunky financial hit against our forecast. That's predominantly down to retail. You know, we're in a lot of physical retail independence department stores who've also taken a huge financial hit, bearing in mind essential goods are the one thing keeping, you know, everyone alive right now. And I think due to, you know, the amount of people that are worried about their own personal finances, the, you know, one of the first things to go are kind of those frivolous items. However, online, we've seen a 20% increase um, against forecast because I think gifting is something that a lot of people are doing to kind of showcase community and kindness and yes. stay close yeah. to people. And we offer really good gifting with Smith and Sinclair. And like I said, Pollen, if you're searching for CBD, we've got a really good SEO and press awareness for such a small brand. So that's not necessarily suffered. It's mainly the retail. And then we have a third part of the business that people aren't necessarily aware of that's B2B innovation. So we work with other brands on creating first market products. And that's also dropped off because a lot of that's for um, travel retail, which is obviously yes. not thriving. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it sounds like different channels are working. Um, obviously some are physically just not working because people can't go and shop. Um, but I, it sounds like it's not, you're, you're still staying on your vision. I mean, you think that 
regardless of how long this lockdown is, the category of CBD is going to be growing and you're well positioned um, to build a great brand there. So, so I guess what's the five year vision, you know, or what's like, why do you see yourselves in five years? I mean, you've achieved a lot in the previous five years. What's, what are you, where are you headed towards? It's interesting because this year we were seen as quite a big tipping point. And I think what COVID will do is kind of potentially set us back 18 months. You know, it's as long as we continue up our energy and the team have been amazing at remaining motivated and coming up with creative solutions. You know, we've moved a lot of our events to virtual events. Um, we've got a lot of our community producing amazing content for Pollen Online. Over the next five years, my absolute ambition is to just grow the brand's even further into mainstream retail. So to date, we've been quite selective in premiums, independents, department stores, and we want to be a grocery item. It's just not right for our product portfolio now. So we've used this time to innovate a lot, to really reconsider what's going to help us come out the other end in a much like bigger, explosive way. Um, because to kind of carve back the revenue we're going to have lost during this time, you almost need to do like three steps forward rather than just the one we were planning initially. Yeah. So our five-year plan is, you know, how do we get into grocery in a more essential way? You know, how can we get pollen at a more affordable, accessible price points so that people that are exploring it out the back of this to help with their mental health can do it without investing $35? How can they invest five? And so that we can definitely introduce it to a wider audience so that in five years, both brands are household names. People, yeah. want, to, people want to buy your products, where should they go? Where's the best place? So, I mean, you can get them from our website. So Smith and Sinclair is www.smithandsinclair.com. Pollen is with pollen.com. Um, follow our socials. We retail Smith and Sinclair across John Lewis. Um, we're in um, Harvey Nichols with pollen. You can buy some Selfridges now. We just launched in Selfridges and we're at the drugstore. Um, so whatever's easiest. Good. And in taking stock in all the journey that you've told us today, if you could go back and give advice to you know, the Mel, before she started any entrepreneurial venture, what would you, what would that advice be? Um, it would probably be to not panic so much in the beginning. I think, you know, experience builds more confidence and patience. It's a volatile journey. By no means has it not been anything but a roller coaster. And there are a lot of lows and it's, you know, I would get at the beginning... I get very overwhelmed by those lows and I'm very grateful to like my personal community who ensured that I could fight through them. But I think I'd go back and just sort of ask myself to take so much pressure off myself because you will always figure it out and letting yourself become emotionally overwhelmed doesn't, doesn't help. That's great. Yeah. Great advice. And, and uh, I can empathize with that. It's a roller coaster, right? You've got to, you've got to make sure you don't, you don't ride the roller coaster. You've got to level it out somehow. Uh, because you can get really high, but there's also lows. And uh, and uh, by leveling it out, you're more durable, and you're it's more like a you're running a marathon, not a not a sprint. Agreed. Great. Thank you, Mel. Take care. Thanks, and see you soon. Thank you. Great.